0: Okay, Um, turn to 1 Samuel chapter 18 again. Again, yes, we've been here for a while. There's just some things we can't ignore and some things that we can't cover in one shot. So, we're going to cover it and we're going to take a few different runs at this. Um, This morning's verses will be... um, verses seven through nine or six through nine. I think that's what I put up there for you. And then we're gonna skip over to verse 20 through 29, okay? So let me, um, let me do that and then we'll, let me read that and then we'll jump in and we'll get into our Bible study. Let me just pull this up. Okay. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his 10,000s. And Saul was angry, and this saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David 10,000s, and to me they've ascribed thousands. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that point forward. And the NIV says that Saul eyed David with a jealous eye from that time forward. That's what we talked about last week. Now let's, let's, uh, let's go over to verse 20. Now Saul's daughter Michal loved David, and they told Saul and the thing pleased him. And Saul thought, let me, let me give her to him that she may be a snare for him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. Hey, hooray, you can be a part of my weird, crazy, dysfunctional family. I'm just kidding, that doesn't, that's not what it says, but you know. Um, And Saul commanded his servants, speak to David in private and say, behold. In other words, manipulate him behind the scenes. Behold, the king is delighted in you and all his servants love you. Now then, become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the ears of David. So they're using flattery and manipulation. And David said, does it seem to you a little little thing to become the king's son-in-law since I am a poor man and have no reputation? And the servants of Saul told him, Well, this is what David's saying. Verse 25, then Saul said, well, go and say this to David, the king desires no bride price except just this thing, a hundred foreskins of the Philistines, that he may be avenged of the king's enemies. Now Saul thought to make David fall or die by the hand of the Philistines. And when his servants uh, told David these words, it pleased David, challenge accepted. It pleased him to be the king's son-in-law before the king, had expi- uh, the king had expired, or the time had expired, David arose and went along with his men and killed 200 of the Philistines, and David brought their foreskins, which were given in full number to the king, that he might become the king's son-in-law. And Saul gave him his daughter Macall for a wife. But when Saul, said, when Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David, and that Macall, Saul's daughter, loved him, Saul was even more afraid of David, so Saul was David's enemy. Continually. Okay, let's pray. Father, I thank you that millions of people right now will learn from the Bible today. Lord, I pray that you would speak powerfully to convict, to comfort, to conform our minds to yours today. Jesus, I pray today for all the children learning about you in our Sunday school classes and all over the world. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that you always love to put them first. I never want to forget them. Lord, I pray that you'd help us to be trusting you more today. Help us to be more humble and playful like those children. And Holy Spirit, I pray that you'd revive us today. Lord, uh, there are people all over the world that are educators, that are artists, that are journalists, economists, scientists, politicians, they're all at church today, some of them. Lord, I pray that you would inspire them with the kinds of ideas that change the world. Lord, that you would use them, use your church in our society, in our community. And I pray that for us today. I pray that you would use um, this time, God, to speak to us and inspire us and refresh us that we might rest in you, Lord, restore the image of God within us, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we've been looking at the life of David on Sunday mornings, but the last couple of Sundays we have been diverted to look at the life of Saul instead. Um, And the reason is because we can't help it, it'd be wrong to turn away from the text. There is like a gravitational pull when you're reading the life of David to want to relate to David, that you want to be the David in the story You find yourself going that way. He will give me victory over my Goliaths and all of those things. And that's great. But sometimes when we do that, we forget, we don't see um, the incredible lessons that God has for us in his word through the other characters. The reality is, as we've said the last couple of Sundays, the reality is more than likely we relate to Saul more than we relate to David in the story. We've all experienced jealousy. We've all experienced the power of comparing ourselves and our lives to other people. We've all experienced how derailing that can be, how friendships have been lost, how that can kind of take over. And um, the Bible gives us the life of Saul as a cautionary tale, uh, in the Bible, the, the writers and the Holy Spirit uses David, really, the anointed one, to speak of the coming, ultimate anointed one, Jesus, someone who will win salvation and redemption for us. Typically, we're the ones that are dealing with the junk. We're the Sauls, and David will deal with his fair share of junk when we get there. But we have to pay attention to Saul. Um, and here's what's so interesting about Saul. Remember his humble beginnings. Do you remember, uh, I don't know how many years ago it was that we were in chapter (laughs) 9? I'm exaggerating, but it was a long time ago. Saul was this humble kid. He was this well-meaning young man. He uh, was this, this guy that loved his family, that was out trying to serve his father. When Samuel came to Saul to anoint him to be king, Saul did not say, well, it's about time someone sees me for the greatness that I am. He actually didn't think of himself as a king. He, at the, his announcement ceremony, we find Saul hiding, not wanting to take the spotlight. And now, fast forward a few chapters, Saul is this monster. He's this contorted soul, so jealous and so insecure that he's trying to kill somebody who's innocent, someone that stands in his way, someone that threatens him. Um, I think that perhaps Saul is one of the greatest case studies in the Bible for Christians when it comes to idolatry. That's what we're going to talk about today. Last week, we, we really inspected Saul's jealousy, the, that idea of comparing ourselves to others and the havoc that that can wreak on our lives. Um, jealousy doesn't get a lot of PR. It's, it's one of the smaller sins, um, and yet in the Bible, it is... It's huge, it's this sin that brought down um, Lucifer, this beautiful angel that, brought, that made him into the evil that he is. I will be like God, I will rise and be like him. We, we dare not take it lightly. But today I wanna say that as bad as jealousy is, I wanna point out to you that there's a certain kind of heart and heart problem that is like an incubator for things like jealousy, for things like hatred, um, there's something else going on, and I'm, what I'm hoping to pawn off on you today is it is idolatry. Idolatry is one of the Bible's um, number one descriptions for sin in general. Idolatry. Um, and I think Saul is so great for this, for us to learn some lessons. Here's why. Because typically, when we think of idolatry, we think of guys like Ahab and Jezebel in the Bible, who are worshiping these the you know the Canaanite god of Baal? You know you remember the story in First Kings eighteen where Elijah, the prophet of of Yahweh, has this showdown with these four hundred prophets of Baal. And you remember the story? He meets them at Mark, at Mount uh, Carmel, and he he um, says, "Let's let's both build an altar, and let's see if your God will light that altar on fire." or I'll call on Yahweh and whoever whatever God shows up, that's the one we're going to serve. This is this incredible prophet showdown going on. Well, that, the, all of those 400 prophets of Baal were subservient to king, the king Ahab and his evil, nasty queen Jezebel. They were worshiping these other gods. Typically we think of that, or we think of Solomon perhaps, who married so many foreign women. Um, that were worshiping other gods, that they turned his heart towards these other gods as well. And those are all, we can learn lots of lessons about idolatry from those people, for sure. But Saul is so interesting because he comes a little closer home for us as Christians. Because Saul, we don't see really anywhere where Saul overtly worships another god. Saul, by and large, is a worshiper of Yahweh. When you listen to the way he rallies his troops, when you listen to the way that he's, he's wanting to pray and make sacrifices to Yahweh before he goes into, into battle, um, he's all about following the Lord, at least externally, and I see, I think, to some extent with his heart. Let me just show you. How do we ignore verses like this? This is 1 Samuel chapter 10, verse 9. It says, God gave Saul a new heart. Seems like a pretty genuine inside transformation to me. Unless you wanna read, you know, do a lot of theological gymnastics to read it a different way. But if you read it just as it is, God gave Saul a new heart. If you keep reading, it says, when they came to Gibeah, behold, a group of prophets met Saul, listen to this, and the Spirit of God rushed upon him. And he prophesied with all the other prophets. Okay? And he doesn't say it was a false prophecy. He just prophesied. And when all who knew him previously, so there's a before Saul, when they, all those who knew him saw how he prophesied with the prophets, the people said to one another, what has come over the son of Kish? Is Saul also among the prophets? So there's some degree of genuineness in Saul to worship Yahweh and to be with Yahweh. What happened to him? How can a guy with a genuine love of the Lord be so tortured and so, so um, insecure, so murderous towards anybody that threatens him? Well, I think the answer is idolatry. Let me try to show you. Last week, uh, sorry, am I do, when I itch my eye, does it do this? Sorry. I have an eyelash. It went right in my eye, and I can't help it. Um, Last week, we talked about jealousy. I wanna show you, literally speaking, there is something that comes before jealousy, and I, what I'm making up here, what I'm trying to pawn off on you, is that there's something in the human heart that comes before all of the symptoms that you may be dealing with, okay? Let me, let me look at verse seven with you again. It says, and the women sang to one another, and they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. And Saul was angry, And this saying displeased him, and he said, they've ascribed to David tens of thousands, and to me they've ascribed thousands, and here we go. Here's what's before jealousy. What more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David with a jealous eye from that day forward. So there's something that's threatened in Saul's heart first, and jealousy vomits out to meet that need, Okay. All the threat and everything else comes out first. But there's something in Saul's life that has now become more important than anything else, and that thing is the kingdom, power, his kingdom, what he wants. And I'm telling you, whatever that thing is, that is the Bible's definition for idolatry. Um, So we're gonna learn about idolatry. What is it, number one? Here's what I I would say without showing you all the... the, the, So what you can do is you can look at all the idolatry in the Bible and you can compile it and you can come up with this definition. Let me just get right to it. What is true idolatry? It's placing ultimate value on anything other than God. Anything. Um, Don't remove yourself to thinking it's about people that worship statues or people that worship... God's lowercase g with other names. That's, it, you know, that's comfortable for us because we kind of get one step removed. But real idolatry is always in the Bible a heart kind of an issue. It's something that's going on in your heart. Whatever you're worshiping, and you are worshiping something, I promise you that. According to the Bible, and what we know is true, every human being to be a human being worships. You're doing it right now. We're worshiping people there's things in your life are prioritized based on what you value the most, okay? That is is why your checkbook looks the way it does. That is why you're early to some appointments and late to others. That is why you hang out with certain people and you don't hang out with others or you keep your distance from others. That is why all of these things are because you are prioritizing what is the ultimate value and what gives me the ultimate amount of um, value. Value of achievement, of um, acumen, of attention—all of those things that makes me feel worth it—and that's why idolatry is. So, we're going to see is so powerful, because when you when you're when you're talking about idolatry, you're immediately talking about your self worth. Now think of that—if your self worth is attached to a McDonald's French fry. It doesn't matter what it is. You'll kill for that. That's the power of it. It's not the thing itself. It is what it means to you. There's this great passage in Jeremiah chapter 2 where God is really getting at the children of Israel for this. And he's saying, you've committed adultery, you've worshipped all these, these other gods, And then he says this incredible line. He says, you've said to this rock, you are my father. And you've said to a stick, you have begotten me. Now let me ask you, is there anything inherently immoral or sinful in a rock? No. Right? Is there anything sinful or inherently immoral in a stick? No. The problem that God is pointing out, it's what you're saying about the rock it's what the stick means to your heart that has become the problem. Um, Charles Spurgeon is for, famous for saying, our hearts are idol factories. We make gods out of everything. <laughs> whatever it is, whoever it is, whatever it is, we tend, to, we tend to have, we're built to worship. We're built for it. And so in our fallenness, we have a tendency to to." Reorder our loves, as St. Augustine would say. We, he, Augustine was famous for saying, Our problem is not um, what we love, it's the order in which we love certain things. We've made good things, ultimate things, and those things are beginning to destroy our lives. Well, how can you know? Well, here's the litmus test right here. Look at Saul. How do you know? These things are sneaky. How do you know that your french fry is an idol? How do you know that your career, or your marriage, or your kids, or all of these things are idols? Well, take a moment. Imagine, um, take a moment to, to, to um, give yourself an imagination about certain, a menu of things that you really love in your life, and imagine what it would be like for those things to be threatened or taken away, and then pay attention to what your system is doing. Uh, there, I always say you know, there's 10 people in a bar Which one's an alcoholic? Well, the one one that freaks out when you take the beer away. The others might say, well, let's go get a coffee. It's no big deal, or we can still talk. But the one that starts to get a little agitated and starts to get desperate, what's the problem? It's not an alcohol problem, it's a worship problem. I need this to get by. I need this to function. I need this to feel okay. I need this to feel valid. Or I need him or her to feel those, the, feel those things. It's a physical disease that's rooted in a spiritual problem. Absolutely. It's a physical disease that's rooted in a spiritual problem. And so, yeah, you can hear, and here's what's dangerous about it. Your brain becomes... Dependent on these types of things your brain your brain and your body. So you you start going back You start your your body was made in a certain way to go back to To have a hyperlink back to what gave you relief and what gave you relief and you can see this with Saul It becomes small and it starts to snowball and starts to take over and starts to become bigger and bigger until eventually so first of all let me show you what this, what idolatry demands. What you're truly worshiping, what you're truly worshiping, at some point, demands that everything else becomes subservient to the object of your true worship, Becomes subservient. You can see it in Saul. Let me read to you verse 20. Look at this account. This is remarkable. So he's threatened from this kingdom. The kingdom is his idol. And look what he, look at the scheme that he brings up. Now Saul's daughter, Michal, how many of you guys have daughters? A few of you? Imagine being a parent with this mindset. What would cause the power of this kind of mindset? They told Saul, so McCall's in love with David. They told Saul and think pleased him. Why did it please him? Did it please him because his daughter would be safe? Did it please him because his daughter would have success? That she would, be, that she would flourish with David? No, this is why it pleased him. He said, let me give her to him that she may be a snare to him and that the hand of the Philistines may be against him. It has nothing to do with his daughter. Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall now be my son-in-law. And Saul commanded his servants. Now look at the abuse of power. He, now he's telling his administration. He's sending them on a task. Speak to David in private and say to him, behold, the king has delight in you. Flatter him. I'm gonna use my authority to, as a hook to get David in. I'm gonna use my validation in this way. I delight in you and all the servants love you. Everyone loves you. We all love you. You're so great. Now then, become the, the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke these words in the ears of David. And David said, does it seem to you a, a little thing to become the king's uh, son-in-law? And you can keep reading. Saul comes out with this scheme. He said, the problem was David was poor. He came from a very poor family. He couldn't, he couldn't afford the bride price that was for the king's daughter. You're, you, in that culture, you paid the king or a dad, for the woman that you were gonna marry, you paid a bride price. David was from a poor family, couldn't afford it. And so Saul says, I'll tell you what, just go to battle, simple thing. Go, go to the store, grab a dozen eggs, gallon of milk, and a couple hundred Philistine foreskins. <laughs> you know, a hundred of my, kill a hundred of my enemies, okay? And David says, great, challenge accepted. And he goes and he brings back 200, and he gives, and look, he kind of begrudgingly gives his daughter to, to, to David. Is, he, think of the power and think of the mindset of a dad here being so contorted in his mind that he would, that he would use his daughter as a pawn to kill, to kill one of his enemies, that he would use his power and release his administration and his resources and his authority to, um, to, to make sure he's not being threatened anymore. What has this kind of a power to, to do these types of things? Uh, you know, Renee is talking about addiction. And, and if any of you that have had any uh, experience with addiction or you've known of, of anybody that has addiction, one thing that you'll you'll know is at times, there's they take remarkable risks for, for what they're after. Um, yeah, not in a shameful way, just as an observatory way. Sometimes I... I I'm a pastor, I've dealt with a lot of folks that are struggling with addiction, and there's been times where I think, wow, for such a small reward for me, you are risking tremendous amounts. I, I know people that have risked their career, they've risked their families, they've risked their children, they've risked their family's reputations, they've risked all of these things for the next hit, the next high, the next things. There's, you have to be in awe of the power of it, right? And you know, our society would, would uh, minimize it just to a physical thing, just to a biological thing or a mental thing. The Bible would say, yes, and it's a worship thing. It's who you're worshiping, it's who you're depending on, it's who you're truly, truly worshiping. First of all, we're all worshiping. There's something that's getting you up out of bed in the morning. There's something that's worth it to you to move, to go back to work, to do the grind, to keep working on your relationships, to keep doing whatever your life is, something motivates you for the, or some things motivate you for those types of things. And whatever those, that thing or those things are or those people are or whatever it might be, that is the true Lord of your life. And the Bible would call that idolatry. We have a tendency. We were made to be completely centered on Yahweh and for that to be our motivation. We were made to work from a place of rest and from a place of worship. That's what we were made to do. And sin flips that and makes us wanna center on other things. It could be your device. It could be phones. It could be your clothing. It could be your style. It could be your career. It could be your friends. It could be whatever it might be. Those things motivate you and you have to pay attention to these things because a lot of them are very good things. For example, Saul was anointed to be king by God. It's not like Saul is depending on alcohol or drugs or anything like that. This is a good thing and this is why I think Saul is such a great case study for Christians because usually what we Christians worship are wrapped in spiritual language. We wrap it up in Christianity and say, look. And so it's, it it slides right on under the radar. Or um, family, our children, our spouse. But listen, the moment they're threatened to be taken away, the moment your, perhaps your wife or your husband or your boyfriend, your girlfriend, or, or your children give you a, a, dis, a, a look of disagreement. Oh, you feel one... Um, family therapist says it's like your air hose gets cut off. If you're in a relationship and there's tremendous, tremendous impetus to, to get someone to think your way or you won't be okay, or you feel someone pulling you, you have to think this way or, you're, or I'm not going to be okay, what's going on there? It's idolatry. Have you ever um, been in a store and you've ran across a, a family with a little tyrant. And the parent says, one, two, and the kid is unfazed and throwing things over Walmart or wherever they're at, three, three and a half, three and three, three. I'll give you some ice cream if you just come back to the cart yeah you know, you know that what's going on there we think we think to ourselves oh gosh that parent needs to what's going on there is that parent is saying I'm not okay as a person my value is tied to the way my child looks to me there's tremendous amount of power there that's how children do it that's 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 the biblical definition of spoiled you could say why do we give our kids things when we, even when we know it's bad for them? Because we can't, we can't bear the thought of being at odds with our children. Or it might be with your spouse or your boyfriend or your girlfriend or someone in authority. Saul definitely knows that. People in authority, we look to them. So he says, hey, I delight in you. He's playing the strings in David's heart. Hey, the most popular, the the highest authority in the land, he's got his eye on you. Oh, we need, okay. And he's playing on those things. We need those things, but it's distorted. It's misplaced love, right? So, the name of the game here is, according again, back to Augustine, he would say, when it comes to our children, when it comes to our spouse, when it comes to those things, the name of the game is not to get rid of those things, but to reorder them, to put them in their proper place so that your, your kids, you can then truly love them the way they need to because you're, out, you're checked off, you're set, so you can minister to them and love them and raise them whether they like you for it or not if you know it's the right thing to do, see? Or money can just be that. It can be money. Not this, I'm worth this much. Or look what I can do. Or look what I've achieved and accomplished. See, that's, that's salvation language. Look where I, look where I anytime, uh, you know, I'll feel better if. Or I really need this. All of those things. And it's sneaky stuff. Uh, Nicole and I, um, we, so, we yesterday, our, our Jeep is, going to be with Jesus, to put it, it is, it is falling apart and um, it's not worth very much money and we started calculating the, how much it would cost to start fixing it and it started to, it started to way exceed what the Jeep was worth and so it was, it's time for us to, to look for a new car. Boy, my heart ignites. Oh, what kind of car? And I want this car with all these bells and whistles you know, and we did get a car by the way, but man, the regulation of my own heart during that process was intense. The inner thing, my heart wanted to make this my thing. I need one with the two sunroofs so I can, while I'm driving, I can look back all the way up and, and, you know, and worship God with creation. You know, we put all these, (laughs) we wrap it all up, you know, in what we think we need. Well, it kind of, and pretty, pretty soon wants become needs and all of these other things. Oh, our hearts do it so fast, so, 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 so fast. And it becomes more and more powerful. You can see this ramping up in Saul's life. He begins, everything's become subservient to this, to the, the real God in his life, the kingdom, even his own children. Even his own, all of his most important relationships. At one point, he takes a shot at his own son, at Jonathan. As, whatever it is that you and I really, truly worship in that moment, that becomes or threatens to become it in the driver's seat. And it has the power to make you stay longer at work and miss a few soccer games or miss this or miss that. It has the power to, um, uh, it has the power to to make cause all sorts of imbalance in our lives, where the Bible would say we were meant to center on Yahweh, and the moment we when we the more so that is true worship. This is not worship uh, when uh, music time, and you know we say. 15 minutes of worship before we get into the announcements. And then, no, 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 no. That, that's, uh, I'm sorry if I've ever said that. That's misinformation. <laughs> um, worship is what we were made to do, and it's a time of repentance. And every, every act of true worship is an act of true healing. You are aligning yourself with exactly where you were made to be, to center on God. And in doing that, you will become more and more healed, and whole and healthy because your system will come into alignment of that. That's why worship is a big deal in the Bible. That's why idolatry is a big deal in the Bible. You'll see it over and over again. There shall be no other gods before me. Why? Because he's an egomaniac? No, because he knows what you were made for. You will function at your best the more and more you are aligned with me. And the more you're out of alignment with me, the more those things and those people will demand more of you. You will become their servant. You, that's not freedom. Saul here is not free. He's a complete and utter slave. And at some point, um, it will eventually eat itself. That's the thing. It's like your God is is writing you an invoice of more and more that it demands until there's nothing left give. It's like a cancer that eats itself away. At the end of, of, well, I didn't put it in our thing because I didn't want to put too much on the screen. But if you keep reading at the end, so Saul in the beginning, he's prophesying with the prophets. And then at the end of this section, this really weird story happens where David finally realizes that, okay, Saul is not just cranky, he's not just irritated, he's not just having some bad days, he's actually trying to kill me. I'm pretty convinced of it. And Jonathan goes to David and says, yeah, my dad wants to kill you, you should go. And and so David flees, and where does he go? He goes to his mentor, Samuel. And Samuel, who's running kind of this prophet school the school uh, that's drawing people into the presence of God. Samuel takes David into into this school and they all start prophesying. And Saul, who started off prophesying with Samuel. Samuel and Saul, this is where Saul began his spiritual journey. The Spirit of God rushes upon him in chapter 10 and he's prophesying these beautiful things. By the way, I should just name this little factoid out. Um, If you read when it says Saul raved in his house against David, does any of you guys' versions say that? It's the same word in the Hebrew for prophesied in his house. Think of that. So here you've got a spiritual man who basically one minute is he's he's raving he's saying he's he he's all over the map he's spiritual and worshiping god and then Don't do it! the next minute whoa he's just volatile and then oh god worshiping god. Oh, god it's not one or the other he's this mixed bag of torture going on in the house so david runs and then he goes to this prophet's school and what does saul do it's like you know what does Saul do? He sends assassins to go kill David at the at the prophet school. I'm pausing because I'm hoping you're seeing how this is getting out of control. <laughs> He's, it's his family, and now even if God Himself comes between him and this idol, he will go against God. He will go against God Himself. That's the point of the story. It's turned him completely like a a cancer that's overtaken his soul. It's turned him completely. The power of worship, the power of idolatry. And eventually, as you know, we'll get there, but eventually, after years and years of this torturous, slow, spiritual death, I guess you could put it, it ends up destroying the very kingdom that he was trying to protect. Saul will end up dying in a fit, and this crazy military engagement trying to protect the kingdom that he wants so bad. It, it, this idol destroys him and consumes him completely. That's why the Bible is so strong in its language about guard your heart above all other things for out of it flows the issues of life. Jesus said it's out of the heart that comes malice and hatred and adultery and murder and all of these types of things. Guard your heart. Why? Because your heart was made to worship. So how can you know? Well, um, one test is, how do you feel when that thing is threatened or taken away? Even just, even, there are certain things that even if you just imagine it. I remember I was pastoring, years ago, I was pastoring this young man who was having a a relationship with this young woman that was inappropriate. And I was encouraging him to not do that anymore. (laughs) And uh, I said, look, I'm not saying, because I could tell it it was like being a dentist working on a tooth without Novocaine. I could tell that around this relationship with this girl was super, super tender. So I tried to back off a little bit. So I just took a step back and I said, look, I'm not saying that the Lord wants you to break up with this girl, but let me ask you this. If, hypothetically, he did want you to break up with this girl, would you just at least be willing? And I'll never forget the reaction. He had a physical reaction. He went, no, 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 no. That's what he did. We were on a walk at a park. We were walking around a park. And he went, it was like I touched that nerve. And he went, no, no, no. That's the one thing I can't. And I said to him, and my friend, she is your true Lord." See, So, well that leads perfectly into the antidote here. What's the remedy? I think the remedy is found in Jonathan. We've come back to this over and over and over again, but it's so profound. Jonathan sees that David is anointed. Jonathan is the heir apparent. He's the one that's going to get the kingdom. Saul is fighting tooth and nail. He's sacrificing his own children. He's, he's manipulating. He's, he's pulled out all the stops to make sure that his dynasty includes his children leading the kingdom. This is what he's doing. Jonathan, who's next in line, sees That David is the anointed one; that God has chosen him. And what what, what does Jonathan do? You have to know this is Herculean for for if you put yourself in. He's going to be the most powerful person in the land. Jonathan, miraculously, I think, takes off his royal robe and puts it on David. He here's what he did. He let it go. He sacrificed the idol. And he takes out his sword and he hilt first gives it to David in this remarkable act of vulnerability. Back then, if one dynasty, in some, in some places of the world today actually, if one dynasty takes over another, they slaughter not just the family but the whole administration of the previous dynasty because they're trying to avoid a coup or someone coming back later saying, I'm the rightful or anybody with influence a, 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 from that old regime They don't want them to use that influence. So it was just kind of protocol to just slaughter everybody so that you'd secure your kingdom and there'd be as little as threats as possible. And here Jonathan gives the sword to David, hilt first. That means, it's like in our world, giving a gun loaded, cocked and ready to go, handle first, the barrel's pointing right back at me. Jonathan is saying, I give it up, I surrender, do what you will. I'm surrendering to God here. And that is true freedom, that's the only way to let it go. Jonathan's free. Have you ever experienced that? Where you lose something and it's hurtful but it's also a little bit relieving at the same time? Have you ever had a moment like that, where like a hit bottom moment where the worst thing imaginable actually happens, and then you come through it and you go, okay, you know, you know in a way, it's like the best thing that's ever happened to me. <laughs> Why? Because you just experienced freedom. You were able to let something go. And this is the true gift of contentment and peace that Christianity offers. That and a, a remarkable, um, John Newton called Christianity, a remarkable balance for the soul. And here's what he meant by that. He went on to explain it. He said, he said, look, if you are, if your heart is centered on Jesus, think of this. Let's say you lose your job, or let's say the girl or the boy says, I don't love you, I don't really like you, and I think you're kind of ugly, or whatever, whatever happens. Here's what the Christian will do. The Christian will go, ow, that hurts. I'm so discouraged. But you know what, I can only be so hurt and so discouraged. I can only be so sad, heart, because that wasn't your main thing anyway right? There's a remarkable durability that comes with Christianity, because if your heart is on something that can never be taken away, can never be ripped from your hands, you can never lose, when you lose these things, even your health, even potentially your life, a Christian can say, yeah, I wasn't planning on it going this way, and boy, I'm just, and it's sad, but you know what, I can only be so sad. What what did Paul say? I'm this, but I'm not that. I'm I'm, um, cast down, but not abandoned i'm crushed but not destroyed it's this beautiful balance and then newton said now let's flip that over on the other side let's say you get promoted let's say you become the king let's say you get you become partner let's say she says i do love you in fact you're pretty hot let's say all of those things happen you can have joy and you can say wow i'm blessed but you know what I can only be so blessed because it wasn't my main thing anyway. Newton was saying, Christians are, that are, have their hearts centered on God are remarkably even-keeled and remarkably balanced people. I can buy a car and drive it home and get in a car accident and go, darn it! But you know what? I'm gonna be all right. I'm gonna be okay. That didn't happen. <laughs> but, it, you know, I'm gonna be all right. I, so... Um, I think this is the. I think this is the true worship. I think is the secret to suffering. So yesterday we went to we went. One of the reasons we went we went to my hometown. I grew up in McMinnville, Oregon, and um, we went to my hometown because one there was a car that we were interested in, but the main reason was because there was a dear, 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 dear friend of mine who mentored me growing up when I was a punk. And he was so loving and so kind and always there. He's fighting a terminal illness and last week his doctor finally said they've tried all these things and last week his doctor said, there's nothing else we can do. Get your things in order, We're, we're out of options. So, I went down there and I spent some time with my friend. Sorry. And I asked him, why are you so at peace? Why are you so tough? And he said, well, because my aunt, who was praying for me when I was a teenager, she had polio and she was on the iron lung. And I would go visit her with my parents. I was like 13, 14, not interested in the Lord. And she would always be praying for me. She would always tell me how much she loved me and how much God loved me. She wasn't interested in herself. And I thought, whatever that woman has, I want it. I want it. And I was thinking of another friend of mine when I was a when I was a um, I, I lived in McMinnville, but I also lived in Montana for some years, and I worked at a nursing home. And it was a nursing home, on one end of the nursing home was for folks that were retirement age, but on the other end of the nursing home was younger people that had gotten in some horrible accident or were quadriplegic, and those, it was, it was like a, a unit outfitted for those people. And there was a, a man in there who was a quadriplegic, he was paralyzed from the neck down. He was a Christian, a blind Christian musician, his name was John. And one day he was walking across the street and a car hit him, and it was hit and run, it ran, and it left him a quadriplegic. And I would, on my breaks, I had a break in the morning, I had a lunch break, and I had a break in the evening, I would go with my food, and I would sit next to John, and this is how it would go. I would say, John, and he would be trying to tell me something. And I would say, I was like 12, and I said, "Um, is the first half of the alphabet John? Or the second half? And he would nod. And I'd say, okay, is it a vowel or a consonant? And he would nod. So I'd go, okay, B, C, D, F, G, H, J. And he would, uh, J, okay. Okay, the next letter, is it a consonant or is it a vowel? Okay, A, E, E, okay, E. And by the by the end of the week, not the day, I had it written down. It was, do you know Jesus loves you? Changed my life. How do you have that kind of toughness? Christianity At that point in my life, I knew there's something in this here. This is real. This is real. This is the stuff the universe was made out of. If he can handle this. I've never been the same. Why? Because his heart wasn't planted on his health in the first place. His heart wasn't planted on his his house and his career and climbing the corporate this or the this or the That. I was wonderful. Those things are fine. Remember, it's not the things. It's what our heart plants on. That's what I'm getting at. His heart was on Jesus. And even in his brokenness, in his, he was. And it saved me. It saved my friend that I met with yesterday. We sat in a, in a coffee shop that we, that I, we grew up praying together at this coffee shop and doing Bible studies at this coffee shop. And we sat there yesterday and we cried and we reminisced. And we hugged each other, and I was able to tell him, Thank you for what you've done for me. I'm sorry. Okay. The remedy is to give it up. If you're holding on to something, someone, the best thing you can do is to let it go. Okay, I can't leave you there because that's not even fair. We've all tried that and it doesn't work. How do we do it? For John, for my friend Dan, for me, the only way I'm able to let go, take my heart off of the idol of a car or a french fry or whatever it might be is to say, is to see when Jesus, the rightful King of the Universe and the King of the Cosmos, took off his robe for me, and said, "I'd rather you have it," and took off his sword, so to speak, and I killed him with it. I nailed him to the cross, and he went through that willingly so that I could have the King; that he could share the kingdom with me. To the degree that you see the king of kings letting go of his kingdom for you. If anybody had a right to hang on to the kingdom of the cosmos, it's God. Talk about the compromise and the bending. He let it go. He said, I love you, Mike. I'm letting this go. That's what changes a heart. That's the only love in the universe powerful enough to unseat the other would-be gods of your heart and the other loves of your heart. It's the only power in the universe that can do it. It's the only power in the universe that can uh, cleanse the land of the abortion crisis. It's the only power. Love, sacrificial love, I'll give it up for you. It'll change everything about you and it'll go out from there. We see it in Jonathan, we see it, of course, in Jesus. And we won't be able to do it unless we see that first. That's why we're gonna take communion today because every week we want to be reminded of what that he gave up a kingdom for you and for me so that he could truly live. Here's the beautiful thing about Jesus. Here's what he says to you and to me. In Mark chapter eight, he says, if anyone would come after me. Here, it's both scary and also wonderful. He says, if anybody would come after me, here's what you got to do. Deny yourself. And that doesn't mean white knuckling it It means he qualifies it. Deny yourself equals take up your cross every day and die for me. For whoever would seek to keep life, hold on to that kingdom, it's mine. Whoever will seek it like Saul, it'll eat you alive. You'll end up losing it. But whoever would give it up for me in the gospel will really have it we'll have true life indeed. It's not like he's just saying, come follow me and deny yourself and die. He's saying, no, on the other side of the cross is what? Easter, resurrection, true. the life you're really longing for. The life you're really longing for and all those other would-be gods. What you're really looking for is he's gonna give it to you, he promised. But to get there, we follow him. We follow him. Amen. Let's be cleansed of our idols today. Let's stand up. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for showing me love through Dan. Thank you for saving him through Judy, his aunt. Thank you for John, that precious saint who loved me through his suffering. And thank you that you gave it up. You surrendered for me. And so now, Lord, I surrender all to you.